Will you help me welcome Noel to the stage? Thank you, Dave. Good morning, everybody. Buenos dias a todos. All right, yeah. Some of you, the only Spanish you know is Yo Quiero Taco Bell or something like that. <laughs> That's all right. Just just remember, Taco Bell is not real Mexican food. All right. All right. Amen. Amen. That's right. Well, uh, the title of my message this morning is Making Great Salsa in the Barrios of Our Nation. Making Great Salsa in the Barrios of Our Nation. Uh, a barrio is a uh, Latino neighborhood, okay? And, uh, but I wanna, it, I wanna kind of expand that definition to say in neighborhoods, in, in poor neighborhoods all over our, our, our nation. Uh, and so I wanna talk to you about how we can do that as people of God. A number of years ago, I was introduced by a woman when I was getting ready to speak, and she was nervous about saying my name right, Noel Castellanos, and pastor of La Vita Community Church. And she was uh, kind of getting to know me before the service to see how she would introduce me. And I told her, well, I've got this real passion to reach and to minister in the bodies of our, of our world and our, our nation. So she gets up there and says my name really well. And Pastor of La Vita says it real well. And then she gets to the part about that little bit of history. And she says, and Noel has a passion to reach the burritos of our nation. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, back then I, I weighed about 40 pounds more than I do today, <clears throat> so I was reaching a lot of burritos in my uh, in my time back then. So anyway, it, it really is great to be with you to share uh, the burden that God has placed on my heart, uh, uh, and and I, I pray that through His Word that we'll be able to do that. Well, a number of years ago, I, I was at a Barnes and Noble bookstore, and I went into the cookbook section and saw a book that caught my eye. Took it off the shelf. This is what it was called, 50 Great Recipes for Salsa. Well, I picked it up and I said, can there really be 50 great recipes for salsa, right? And so I looked through it and, you know, I didn't buy the book, but I kind of, you know, really caught my eye. And what I want to talk about this morning is is another kind of recipe, okay? What is the biblical recipe for transforming poor neighborhoods and the poor? How do we minister as God's people to the poor? And I would like to suggest to you this morning that there's a lot of ways to minister to the poor. There's a lot of uh, kind of uh, methodologies. There's a lot of ways to kind of uh, target the poor, to go in and help them. And what I have found is that the best recipe that I can ever imagine is found in, in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, and it centers around the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's where I get this title, uh, Making Great Salsa in the Barrios of Our Nation. And uh, over, uh, you know, these next uh, few minutes, I want to share uh, this recipe. If we're going to make a difference in our communities, uh, in especially those vulnerable neighborhoods where people are really suffering and hurting, uh, there are six ingredients that we must embrace that we find in the ministry of Jesus uh, and make them our own. Number one that we've got to embrace Jesus' mission as our own mission, okay? We follow Jesus of Nazareth. We follow Jesus Christ, and he had a mission. And if we're going to uh, really make a difference, the best thing we can do is to follow that 
mission ourselves. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, uh, listen to what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of blind uh, sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. Can I say it like this? Jesus declares His mission statement in the reading of that passage of Scripture in Isaiah 61. And it's a mission statement that will define His earthly ministry. And what I want to suggest to you today is that it ought to define the ministry and activity of his church on this planet today. Okay? If we are his followers, if this is the God that we follow, then our mission ought to reflect the mission of Jesus himself. Surprisingly, there's a new pope in town, right? First Latino Pope. Now, you're getting the picture, right? We're on a Latino theme here this morning, right? Everything Latino uh, from Argentina. And it seems that he has captured the hearts of the entire world. The first Latino Pope shaking things up. This former bouncer, I love that, okay? I mean, hey, you know, don't you love that? that our, the Pope is a, used to be a bouncer. I don't know. That, that's cool to me, all right? He seems to have embraced the mission of Jesus to love the poor and minister to the poor in unprecedented ways. He rejects the perks of his office. No red Gucci slippers for him. No limo rides. He stops to kiss the feet of people with leprosy. He stops to kiss those and embrace those who are uh, homeless and that nobody else wants to touch. What he's reminding us is that the poor are at the center of God's love and concern. See, we ought to know that by examining the life of Jesus, but we forget that sometimes. In the ministry that I have the privilege of leading, the Christian Community Development Association, or CCDA, we have found, and I've discovered this as I travel all over the country, that when a person, a church, a ministry begins to embrace Jesus' mission statement as their own, Everything begins to change. We begin to uh, find ways to recalibrate our lives, to put the poor at the center of our ministry activity and priority. Okay? Uh, We begin to be gripped by a burden to love the poor the way Jesus loved the poor. In the last 25 years, I've been connected to a church on the west side of Chicago called Lawndale Ministries, Lawndale Community Church. And the church, uh, I, I came from Chicago with my wife and a couple kids back then, and we started a ministry in the Mexican community right next door called South Lawndale or La Villita. And the mission statement of, of our church has been to love God and love the people of our community, okay? And we've been trying to follow the mission statement of Jesus by living in the neighborhood, by serving in the neighborhood, by worshiping in the neighborhood, The space where we worship says a lot about our mission, okay? Instead of having this beautiful uh, worship center, and, and, you know, I want to just say, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a great place like this, but where we are located on the west side of Chicago in one of the poorest uh, neighborhoods in the whole country, uh, we have decided to make a statement as a church. We had an opportunity a few years ago on a big lot right there on Ogden Avenue where we're located to think about building a big worship center that we could use, you know, to gather 1,000 people on Sunday mornings and so we wouldn't have to have three services and all that kind of deal. 
And um, instead, the leaders of the church made a decision that I think reflects the mission of Jesus. You know what they said? We don't, we're not going to spend $10, $20 million to do that. Instead, we're going to invest in ministries to the people in the neighborhood. So we worship on Sunday mornings in a very basic, musty gymnasium that every Sunday gets converted into a worship center. And it reminds us that the church is not a building, but that the church is the people that come together in that building to worship God. But we said we're going to follow the mission statement of Jesus, and we're going to invest our resources instead. And so, you know, one of the great things we did is we built a a big fitness center in the neighborhood. That cost $20 million, but it's a big facility so that everybody in the community can come and get healthy while we're treating them with our medical center so that their bodies are healthy. They're also able to have a place to come as a family to really get their bodies in shape. Well, this is the kind of thing that happens when we embrace Jesus' mission as our own. So ingredient number one in this great recipe to make great salsa in the bodies of our nation is that we have to embrace the mission statement of Jesus as our own. The second ingredient that we've got to embrace if we're going to really make a difference in our communities and to be about the poor is that we've got to enlist other people to join us to accomplish this mission. If you've ever been involved in a tough type of ministry of any kind, you know that no one person can do it alone. It takes a whole community. It takes a whole church. It takes a bunch of people. And I am absolutely struck by this next passage that we find in Luke chapter 5. In beginning in verse 8 through 11, uh, what I'm struck by is that Jesus himself begins to recruit a team to help him accomplish this mission on earth. Listen to what it says in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, uh, you know, Jesus, you know the story. He told them to launch his nets out into the, into the waters, and they caught all this fish. He says he fell at Jesus' knees, and he said, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Right after declaring his mission statement of bringing good news to the poor in Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins to enlist a team of men and women to do what? To implement his mission of making sure that those Uh, people that everybody else rejects will be sought after like a fisherman goes after fish, okay? He wants everybody on this planet to know that God loves them, and especially he loves those that nobody else wants to be around and love. Often we read this passage, and we say, this is a great evangelism passage. We're going to go become fishers of men. And I think it is about evangelism. But you know what? It strikes me that if you're a leader, you declare your mission statement, and then the very next thing that Jesus does is he starts recruiting a team, and you have to ask yourself, what for? And I want to tell you this morning that I believe that Jesus begins to call people like you and me, to join him in this mission of being an agent of love and transformation to the entire world, especially to those that are on the margins of society, okay? 
That marks a Christian. That marks the ministry of Jesus. Uh, every year at our conference, we gather about 3,000 people every year that are doing this kind of ministry all over the country. And we meet amazing men and women who are feeling God's call to move into tough neighborhoods to make a difference for the kingdom. One of the first things that I tell folks, these great, courageous young men and women, I mean, there are a few old ones, you know, like 30 and 40 as well, okay, years old. Uh, But you know what I tell them? Don't think about doing this by yourself. You can't do it. Bring a team of people. Do it with others. Find other people because you cannot do this work by yourself, right? Think about any ministry activity. It was meant to be done in uh, community with others. So even Jesus enlisted others to accomplish this mission of preaching the good news of the poor. So ingredient number one, we embrace the mission of Jesus, but then we begin to enlist a team. Those two are vital. Once you've got that team, what is it that we do? Uh, The third ingredient is that we work to extend personal touch. We work to extend personal touch. I love this passage that we uh, are, you have up on the screen, Luke chapter 5, again, verses 12 to 13. Listen to what it says. While Jesus it was in one of the towns, a man comes along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell to his face on the ground and, and he begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. I love this encounter with this man uh, because it demonstrates the way that Jesus reaches out to people, up, close, and personal. He could have healed this man from a distance, but he does not only the unexpected, but what every respectable Jewish rabbi would avoid at all costs, touching someone who's unclean. Okay, that was a radical thing. I always say that there's two miracles in this story. One is that he heals the man of leprosy. But the second miracle is how he does it. He goes and embraces and touches the man. Can you imagine uh, uh, this man who's been isolated from community, from family, even from the synagogue? He he was uh, told he could not come near to anybody because he was unclean. Jesus touches him. In the many years that I've done ministry in Mexican barrios, all over the country. The most impactful uh, ministry that I have done myself has been when I've had an opportunity to simply touch one of my neighbors in a personal way. I've got a good friend, his name is Andy, who works and lives in uh, Los Angeles, and he's the director of the largest uh, rescue mission in L.A. called the Union Rescue Mission. Uh, I mean, there's like over 100,000, a couple hundred thousand people that live on the streets of uh, L.A. uh, on Skid Row. Okay, if you go down there, it's just unbelievable how many folks are just sleeping on, on uh, you know, under uh, buildings, on sidewalks. And the majority of these folks have drug problems. They're separated from family. Uh, they come out of prison. And many, many of them have mental uh, illness issues. Uh, what a thing to be called to that kind of ministry Day after day, Andy and his team are down there trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to these men and women. And what I have been most impressed when I go hang out there, my son actually lives not too far away from there and works downtown L.A. But when I go visit Andy, you know what I often see him doing? Walking around the streets, around the mission, just loving on uh, men and women who are homeless. They don't smell great. They don't look great. 
It's like you can look, if you look deeply in their eyes, you can still see that glimmer of humanity that says this is a man or a woman created in the image of God, but it's been really, really scarred. It's been beat down. And Andy is able to look into their eyes and love them and hug them. And usually it's not just words. He gets in there and gives them a big hug and just lets them know that somebody has not forgotten that they're alive. And that's the ministry that Andy has. And you know what I want to say to you this morning? That when I think about ministry to the poor, uh, Bible studies are needed, programs are needed, but they can never replace the need for personal touch. Do you understand what I'm saying? The poor don't need another program. The poor need somebody to come alongside and be the hands and feet of Jesus. So we take the mission of Jesus as our own. We begin to enlist others, you know, to come along. And, uh, and then we, uh, we go and we say, man, we're going we're gonna to come and, and, and embrace folks with the personal touch. And then the fourth ingredient that I found is absolutely necessary. If a church is going to make a difference, if Christians are going to make a difference among the poor, is that we have to exercise bold faith. We've got to exercise bold faith. This ministry is not for the faint of heart, okay? Luke uh, 5, 17 to 26, it says that one day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, okay? Now, that's not a good thing to be said about Christians. We're just sitting there, right? Okay? Uh, And then they came uh, from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. They could not find a way to do this because of the crowd. And they went up on the roof, lowered him on his mat, uh, on his mat, threw the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friends, uh, or friend, look into the guy on the mat, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to think to themselves, Who is this fellow uh, uh, who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Well, this passage is filled with so much rich theology about God's concern for both people's hearts and souls and for people's physical uh, and, uh, and earthly needs. Jesus heals this paralyzed young man of his sins, uh, and and he forgives him of his sins, but he also heals his body, which is exactly the kind of approach that I believe the church needs to take if we're going to really impact poor communities. What impresses me uh, here about these four friends is that they had bold courage, bold faith. Now, if somebody my age or, you know, uh, some of us older folks would have been the ones that brought our friend to Jesus, you know, we'd go and we'd see that uh, the whole thing was all filled and we'd say, oh, shucks, we tried. Let's go home. Sorry, Jose. Next time we'll, Jesus comes into town, we'll get you in front of him, right? 
But it had to be teenagers, right? They get up, and, they, and one of them has a crazy idea. No, nah, man, let's do this. Let's jump on the roof. We'll just tear the roof off lower. He'll have to heal them, right? Well, to, to their surprise, uh, Jesus recognizes their faith. But, uh, you know, he, uh, he does the kind of thing that uh, I have grown to love about Jesus. He doesn't dichotomize people into physical and spiritual. You know what he says? He says, I care for all of you. I care for the whole person. I know that you have a broken body, and I'm going to heal that to demonstrate that I love you. But even more importantly, you have a broken heart, okay? And you're far away from it because of your sin, and your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And I think that's the approach that we take in the community. It's not an either-or proposition. Are we about social ministry or are we about telling people about the love of Jesus? We've got to do both. We've got to engage in both. To love Jesus, to follow Jesus, to minister to the poor, folks need to know that great message that God has a plan for their life and that He's got a place for them for all of eternity. But I tell you, that will ring empty if we don't also demonstrate His love in practical ways. I love that Jesus looks at these four guys and says, man, I'm impressed with your bold faith. Almost 30 years ago, a friend of mine, this white dude from uh, uh, the Baltimore area, he moved into an all-black neighborhood, really tough neighborhood. And for the next 25 years, him and his wife and family, uh, they built one of the most successful uh, Habitat for Humanity ministries in the whole country. Now, that in itself is a pretty good story, right? But here's the rest of the story. Uh, Just a few years before he moved into the neighborhood, he was out playing basketball with some kids from the hood, and he was thrown into the uh, wall, and he became paralyzed from the neck down. Alan, uh, you know, his dream of moving into the hood was shattered. He thought, man, now I'm just, you know, can't do it. I'm in the wheelchair. But a few years later, after a lot of operations and all that, Alan and his wife and a couple kids moved into the hood, and... uh, God used him in a powerful way. He died a few years ago, and at his funeral, one of his fellow staff people, a guy by the name of Antoine, who used to be an ex-con, but he says when he introduces himself now, I used to be an ex-con, but today I'm an icon for Jesus. He said this of Alan. If Alan had come into our neighborhood as as the great white hope, able-bodied and full of pride and overconfidence, his ministry would have failed. But because he had to come in humility, armed with love and with bold faith, God used him powerfully in our community of Sandtown. When we are gripped with God's vision to preach good news to the poor and the vulnerable of this world, and we go in humility to be his hands and feet, miracles happen. Lives and entire communities are transformed by the power of God. Okay? So we go with bold faith. We go to touch people. We go not alone, but we enlist others. And we're just following the mission that Jesus himself initiated. But the fifth ingredient that uh, we have to embrace as well, and, and we know this is going to be part of the mix, is that we have to endure criticism for ministering to those on the margins. Okay, I wish I could just tell you, man, this is all easy and it's great. And once you, you know, begin to take on this mission, you're, it's just going to be so much fun all the time. Right. But look, look what happened in Jesus's ministry, starting in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector, not the most popular guy. Okay. In, 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 the, in town, 
uh, by the name of Levi sitting at his, at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, and I love this verse. This maybe encapsulates everything I'm talking about in this one simple little verse. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And there's another version that I even like a little better. You know, it says, it is not those who think they are well that I have come to heal. You see, if you think you're better than, if you think you're okay, then probably Jesus can't help you that much. But when we come to the point where we realize that every one of us is in need of this doctor that can heal us of our sin and self-centeredness, then great change can happen. In this passage, Jesus was criticized. By who? Okay? By the religious leaders for hanging out with riffraff, with sinners, with those that were unacceptable in, in, uh, in the synagogue. When we commit to ministering among the poor, we can often expect extreme criticism. While it seems that uh, we should be praised, right, for reaching out to men and women who are suffering and who others reject, that we should be encouraged, often the opposite happens. There's a term that some of you might know. It's this term called NIMBY. Anybody ever heard that term before? Okay, NIMBY, for community developers or people that are trying to institute uh, change in neighborhoods and help the poor. Uh, it's often thrown in, in, in our faces as an opposition to why we shouldn't do this ministry. It stands for this, not in my backyard. Okay, not in my backyard. Uh, Often when a ministry says we want to start a warming center or we want to do a little food pantry or we want to minister to to delinquent kids, folks will say, look, it's okay that you do that. Just don't do it near me. Don't do it by my house. Don't do it by my subdivision. Don't do it by our church property because it's going to really mess us up. And and we're going to start, you know, getting all all this bad influence come around us. They often are worried about their safety, about their property values. And this uh, idea of serving the poor like Jesus gets a little bit less sexy uh, when it happens in our own backyard. Now, right now, uh, the most challenging project that I'm involved in, uh, and, and I'm telling you, this is probably one of the most gut-wrenching things that I've done in a long time, is that uh, I am working on a project to help what is called unaccompanied children Okay, that are coming by the thousands from Central America to our border uh, to help them as they get processed and transitioned to be taken back home. Okay, uh, this has been going on for a long time. It's not a new thing, but maybe there would be five or ten thousand of these children that would come to our border. They get caught. They get put in a shelter temporarily, and then you know they have to go through a process. Then they get reunited with their family, sent back home. Well, this year. Estimates say that there may be 80,000 of these children, okay? It's in the news, very controversial, okay? Nobody seems to have the right idea of what to do and and all of that. But I'll tell you what, uh, I just got back from on Friday. I flew five hours it took me to get down to the Mexican border, 
and I was there for about five hours working with some churches, flew back, got home about one o'clock in the morning, trying to put this together. And here's what we're doing. We believe that regardless of our politics, that these children deserve somebody who would come and stand by them to love them and let them know that, uh, that uh, they're, they're going to be cared for. They're not going to be here very long. Many of them might be here for a week or two weeks at the longest. They may be here a few months, okay? But here's our project. We're trying to get churches to start these temporary shelters that the government would approve so that these children can come and stay as they're in transit back to their home countries. Listen, it sounds like a really great project. It seems like what Jesus would want us to do, to love these children, to be on the front lines of something like this. But I'm telling you... uh, we're going to get criticism. The churches that do these centers are going to be criticized themselves. Uh, while these children, you know, who are five, six, seven years old to t- through teenagers, uh, you know, what would you want us to do uh, to meet this need? And I've been praying as I've prayed. I, this is the thought that has guided my mind and heart uh, often. What if something in our country were, 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 were to get to the point where our children would have to be sent off into another country, somewhere else, out of desperation to seek refuge, how would we want those folks who take our children in to treat them? Okay? And then, more importantly, what would Jesus say? When he says, let the children come on to me, that the way we minister to the vulnerable and the weak is the way we actually minister to him, does that have anything to say to how I, as a Christian, respond to that need? Sometimes we must risk and endure criticism in order to accomplish Jesus' mission of preaching good news to the poor, okay? So we endure criticism. Uh, we, we, uh, you know, we, we know that that's going to happen, but then, then there's one last ingredient, okay, that I want to talk to you about as I close up. And that is that if we're going to make an impact as a church to uh, really... Uh, make a difference the way Jesus made a difference among the needy and the poor, that we have to embrace change. We've got to embrace change. Verse 33, uh, actually, I'm, I'm going to go uh, right to verse uh, 37, okay? So uh, let's go to verse 37. Are we there? Yep. Okay, it says, And no one pours new wine into old wineskin. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the skins will be ruined. No, new wineskin must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. The final ingredient that I've discovered uh, over many years of ministering to the poor that must be present in the church if we're going to be faithful to Jesus' ministry and mission of preaching to the poor is that we must embrace change in, uh, in our lives, in our ministries, in order to make ministry to the poor, a priority, okay? Listen to that passage. He says, when, you know, uh, new wine, this new wine of his spirit to really be about uh, demonstrating to the world that God loves them, you can't pour that new wine into old structures and old wineskins because it just can't contain it. You've got to be able to change. You've got to be able to respond differently. We've got to figure out ways how to make this happen. And, it's, and he says, if you do, that old wineskin will just burst. But here's what the people will say. We prefer the old wine. We don't want the new wine. And, 
every day as Christians, individually, as churches, we've got to make difficult decisions about whether or not we want that new wine, whether or not that we are ready to, to be uh, Jesus' hands and feet to minister to the poor. Are we willing to invest more of our time and money and effort to minister to the poor uh, if the opportunity arises? Are we going to spend more money on ourselves, more on kind of taking care of our needs? Or are we going to look around and say, what are the needs that are around me? You know, it has everything to do from where am I going to live? What kind of car do I drive? You know, where do I go to school? What am I studying in college? Why am I doing the things that I do? Is it to really just have a better life for myself? Or now that I've been gripped by this idea of being a part of God's mission on the earth, am I going to be about loving and serving God? As a church... Right? Do we hire more staff to take care of our people? Do we uh, do more uh, programs so that we might be comfortable? Do we build an even bigger worship center? Do we increase our commitment to missions? Uh, do we engage our members outside of four walls? See, all those are important questions. In this final parable, Jesus warns us that when confronted with the opportunity to be filled with His purposes and priority in our lives, that we... And we've just got to be honest about this. We'll often be tempted to resist change. We'll be tempted to keep the status quo instead of embracing the lifestyle of ministry to the most vulnerable in society. This recipe uh, that we find in Luke chapter 4 and 5 that has Jesus at the center, it's a recipe that works. You know, embracing his mission enlisting others, touching people in a personal way, uh, bold faith, uh, being willing to endure criticism, and then saying, man, I'll do whatever I have to do to change so that I can really align my life and recalibrate my life to do that. The question is, will we do this? Now, in conclusion, uh, when I was pastoring uh, my church uh, in the Mexican neighborhood of La Vita a number of years ago, at the end of many of the services, we'd have a potluck dinner or lunch at the end of the service. And uh, we, it was about Christmas time, and I decided I'm going to make some uh, great holiday salsa to bring to share with all the congregation. And so I found one of those fancy-dancy recipes that I talked about at the beginning of, the, of my uh, sermon this morning. And it was a holiday salsa, and it had chopped up cranberries, and it had walnuts, and it had pineapple, and it was colorful, and then some jalapenos and some cilantro, and it was a great-looking salsa. Only thing is, on the table, nobody was touching it, right? All my Mexican members, they were afraid. What in the heck is that? I've never seen salsa like that. And finally, one of the first guys that I helped reach for Christ, his name was Manuel. He'd come out of a really tough life. He comes and he puts his arms around me and he says, Pastor, no podemos hacer salsa sin los tomates. Okay, he says, Pastor, you can't make real salsa without tomatoes, right? And so I learned my lesson that day, and I've never made that holiday salsa ever since, all right? So as I close, here's my challenge to you, okay? If, as a church and as a people, we are going to make a difference among the poorest and most vulnerable communities and folks in our world, we have to keep these six ingredients that I talked about in the center. Otherwise, it's not real faith. It's not real expression of what we are called to do in the name of Jesus.
Let's pray. Father, thank you that you call us to make great salsa in the communities and the neighborhoods of our nation. And this morning, I pray that you would use your word to encourage us to do just that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.